Let us pray. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with thy most gracious favor, and further us with thy continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in thee, we may glorify thy holy name, and finally, by thy mercy, obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are in Matthew today, chapter 15. And we are going to begin today at verse 32 and finish out this chapter, say a few words about the end of chapter 15 and a few words about the beginning of chapter 16, and then we'll see what we have time left for after that. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 15. We'll go ahead and read verses 32 to the end of the chapter. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. We said uh, over the course of the past couple of weeks that Jesus had decided to withdraw from the region of Galilee and go up to the area of Tyre and Sidon. It was to the north and to the west. We said there were a number of reasons why Jesus did it. Incidentally, it was the only time during the course of his three-year ministry that he left Jewish territory and ventured into overtly Gentile territory. This was the only time that Jesus did that. Now that's not to say that he didn't have contact with Gentiles on other occasions, but oftentimes it was within the Jewish context. This is the only time where Jesus goes into an area which is not heavily populated by the Jews, but populated almost exclusively by Gentiles. And we said there were a number of reasons for Jesus to do this. One was because there was this increasing hostility on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, to the point where they were not simply interested in discrediting Jesus, they were getting to the point where they wanted to be rid of Jesus altogether. So that was one reason. Jesus recognized that he had an explosive situation on his hand, and he felt the need to withdraw, at least for a time, to let things cool down. The other reason is because he had just performed this extraordinary miracle of the feeding of the multitude, the 5,000, with the five loaves of bread and the two small fish. And it was such an extraordinary miracle, the only miracle we said that was recorded in all four of the Gospels, that the people were prepared to make him a king, forcibly make him a monarch. Now, of course, the problem was that they had very specific ideas in their minds as to what this new king was going to be like. Uh, They were anticipating a political or military messiah who was going to come and free them from the tyranny of Rome. And I pointed out last week that Jesus, of course, had come to be a Messiah. He had come to be a king, but not that kind of a king. He was going to receive the kingdoms of the world. That's made very clear as the New Testament progresses, but he was not going to receive those things on the people's terms. And so Jesus had withdrawn for that reason as well. But we said there is perhaps a third reason why it was that Jesus withdrew to this area. 
And that was because this ongoing battle with the scribes and the Pharisees really had to do with this whole subject of ritual cleanness. The Pharisees were particularly concerned with the outward appearance of things. That was one of the accusations they made against Jesus' disciples, that before they sat down to eat, Jesus' disciples refused to wash their hands. Now, this, as I pointed out, had nothing to do with hygiene. This was a ritual cleansing. And when they came and they accused Jesus' disciples of not being ritually clean, we said that Jesus actually attacked them. He'd had about enough of, this, of the Pharisees at this point. And he made it very clear that the problem is not what things appear on the outside. The problem is what is going on on the inside. And we're going to see that this is going to be a continuous running battle with the religious leaders. When we get to Matthew chapter 24, we're going to see that one of the things that Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, the problem with you is that you're so concerned with cleaning the outside of the cup, but you don't clean the inside of the cup. And what good is it if the, if the cup is dirty? Why would you just clean the outside but continue to drink from the inside, which is filthy? He said, that's the problem with you. He said, that's the way it is with you. You look so polished and impressive on the outside, but on the inside, you're rotten. And one of the reasons we said why Jesus perhaps took his disciples up here to this region of Tyre inside is because this was an area occupied by Gentiles who in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees were unclean. They were ritually unclean. But up there, what do they uncover? Well, they encounter a woman who in the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders was unclean, but a woman who had extraordinary faith. And spiritually speaking, was far beyond where any of the scribes and the Pharisees were, and in fact, far beyond where the disciples themselves were. A woman, a Canaanite woman, who nevertheless recognized Jesus as what? The Messiah, the Christ of God, and a woman who had a persistent faith and a faith that she placed in Jesus Christ, and it made all the difference in the world. And we got to the end of that story, and we said that Jesus praised this woman for her faith, for her extraordinary faith. We said we only encounter two people, really, in the Gospels, which Jesus praises so highly. And the irony is that both of them are Gentiles, a Roman centurion and this Syrophoenician Canaanite woman. You would have expected that Jesus would have praised the Jews for their faith, but what Jesus really does is he castigates the Jews, particularly the Jewish religious leaders, for their lack of faith. He said to the cities where he had done all of his miracles, if the same signs had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. He said, if the great miracles that have been done in your presence had been done in the presence of Sodom, it would still be standing today. So one of the other reasons why Jesus led his disciples up here into this distant region, into this unclean territory, was so that they would realize that what really matters is not the way things appear on the outside, it's what's going on in the heart that really matters. It is a matter of the heart. That is so important for you and for me because we can look respectable, we can look upstanding in the eyes of the world, but if our hearts are far from God, our souls will perish. That's what Jesus was trying to impress upon the disciples. Well, we come today here at the end of chapter 15 to a story that I think is linked to all of this. 
The Gospels organize their material in a very specific way. Matthew is no exception to that. We come to another extraordinary feeding, the feeding of the 4,000 over and against the feeding of the 5,000. And I said that this story is linked to what has gone before. It comes right after this encounter with the Canaanite woman. Now, some scholars have suggested that this is just a variation on a theme. Sometimes in the ancient world, as I pointed out to you before, they didn't write history the way that we write history. And sometimes for the sake of effect, for the sake of uh, trying to impress a point on an audience, they would repeat a story, sometimes with slight variation. And some scholars have suggested that that's what we have here. We simply have another version of a miraculous feeding. The first time it was 5,000, this is time it's 4,000, but it's a variation on the theme. It's the same story, not two separate stories. But I want to suggest to you that that is not the case. I want to suggest to you that you have two miraculous feedings here in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you look closely, you can see that the details are, in fact, different. Uh, to begin with, the number of people is different. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, it's 5,000. Here, it's 4,000 plus women and children. Second thing to notice is that there is a quantity of food left over. In the case of the feeding of the 5,000, it was 12 baskets full. In the case of the feeding of the 4,000, it's 7 baskets full. The context is different as well. We're told that the people had been with Jesus for a day earlier in this gospel with the feeding of the 5,000. Here on this occasion, they had been following him for three days. So he's been with them for a longer period of time. And something else is interesting. The ground cover is different. You have to look at the details. On the earlier occasion, he had them sit down and were told that the grass was green. And here it implies that the grass was not green, that the area was rocky or the land was brown, indicating that it was not only a different location, it was also a different time of the year. Something else here. Once Jesus feed, finishes feeding these 4,000, he sends away the crowd and we're told he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan. Uh, this is an area known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis, deca meaning ten, was a series of ten cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They were, for the most part, Gentile cities. They were occupied almost exclusively by Gentiles. So you can see the flow here of the narrative. Jesus goes up into Tyre and Sidon, and he encounters this woman in Gentile territory. Then he performs the feeding of the 4,000 in Gentile territory. And when he begins to move south back towards Galilee, he doesn't go immediately to Galilee. He goes over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee where he does what? Where he enters the Decapolis, an area that was occupied by Gentiles. I think what Jesus is doing here is, again, impressing upon the disciples the importance of the heart. So here are just a few final observations that I want you to note. First of all, wherever Jesus went, he treated the Gentiles precisely the same way that he treated the Jews. 
I think that's very important for you and for me as Gentiles. Jesus didn't have concern only for his own people. He had concern for everybody. It's interesting to note that when he came to this region, we're told that he healed the sick. Well, he'd healed the sick in Galilee as well. But he didn't turn to these people and say, well, now listen, you're Gentiles, and I'm only going to heal the Jews because salvation is of the Jews. What does he do? He cares for the Gentiles in the same way that he cares for the Jews. The feeding of the 4,000 is significant. Why? Because in the feeding of the 5,000, the audience was what? Jewish. In this case, being where this takes place, this is Gentile territory. Jesus feeds them in a miraculous way, in precisely the same way that he feeds the Jews. And he feeds them, not just enough, but an overabundance. And here's something else that is very interesting. On both occasions, Jesus tells the disciples to serve them. Now, what you see here in this story is that the disciples still don't get it. I mean, they've just seen Jesus feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two small fish. And yet, when Jesus says, I am unwilling to send the crowds away because they are hungry, lest they faint... The disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place? You can just imagine what Jesus was thinking at that point. He must have smacked his forehead and said, how much longer do I have to be with you? But what is interesting to note is that on both occasions, Jesus did what? He fed the people, but he ordered the disciples to serve them. Now, as good Jews, they would have had no problem serving their fellow Jews. But as good Jews, they would have had a real hard time feeding these unclean, uncircumcised Gentile dogs, and yet that is exactly what Jesus told them to do. So what we see here is Jesus treating the Gentiles in precisely the same way that he treated the Jews. He has compassion on all. He's not concerned with what your family has done. He's not concerned with how upstanding you may be in the eyes of other men. Jesus Christ came to save all manner of men and women. And that should be a great encouragement to us. So here are just a few parting thoughts about this section, Matthew chapter 15. All of this reminds us that faith, true faith, can be found in the most unlikely of places. Oftentimes, the places where you expect to find faith, within the doors of a church, you don't find it. And oftentimes, out on the street is where you find people who are broken and hurting, and that's where you find the true kind of faith that moves mountains. For those of you who were here last night um, for the Wednesday service, Brian told a story of how he leads a small group of young men and they had gone to a restaurant and uh, the restaurant got kind of noisy and so they decided after their Bible study that they were going to go out in the parking lot to pray. And they went out in the parking lot to pray. A man who was there on his smoke break, break and who had been a server in the restaurant, he had witnessed them doing their Bible study, saw them go out to pray and he came out. And uh, he was a man who was coming out of drug and alcohol addiction. And he was struggling. Uh, he was beginning to fall off the wagon, and he was anxious about this. And because he was a new Christian, he felt as though God had somehow, maybe perhaps, rejected him. And so he came up to Brian and to these young men, and he said, Would you be so kind as to pray 
for me. And they prayed for him, and what he felt was the rushing grace of the Holy Spirit upon his life, and all of a sudden he broke down and he began to cry, and he began to realize that, that God's grace really is boundless. And he felt restored. Well, that event didn't take place where? Within a beautiful church or a cathedral. It took place where? In a restaurant, in a parking lot, on a smoke break. It is a reminder to us that faith, the kind of faith that saves, the kind of faith that Christ praises, is a faith that isn't always found in the most likely of places. Here's something else these stories teach us, that we should be encouraged to come to Jesus. He does not turn away the brokenhearted. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. That's what the Scripture tells us. It doesn't matter who we are. You might say, well, my life is not together. I've made a mess of my life. Be encouraged to come to Jesus. Why? Because He came for people like you. The Jews thought that they were something special because they were the children of Abraham, and indeed they were, and they should be encouraged to come to Jesus. That's why He went to them. But there were those who were on the outside, who were not part of the covenant community, who were, in the eyes of the Jews, unclean, uncircumcised dogs, and yet Jesus said, come to me. Come to me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden. He didn't say, come to me, all ye Jews who are heavy laden. Come to me, all you Episcopalians or Anglicans who are heavy laden. He said, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So whoever you are, whatever your problem is, whatever your past may look like, one of my favorite quotes from C.H. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon said, sinners especially should come to Jesus. Sinners especially, because, of course, we're all. But he said not just sinners. He said elephantine sinners. <laughs> Big sinners. We should all be encouraged to come to Jesus because there is still room in the ark of Christ Jesus even for the vilest of the vile. So faith can be found in unlikely places. Be encouraged to come to Jesus. Be encouraged to come to Jesus, especially if you're hurting especially if you're brokenhearted, especially if you're lonely, especially if you're burdened by guilt and by sin. Come to Jesus. For He came into the world to save sinners. And here's the last thing I will leave you with with chapter 15. What you will discover when you come to Jesus is that very often Jesus has more compassion for you than Jesus' followers do. You know, it's unfortunate, but that's often the case. People will say, well, I go to the church and the church really turned me away. Well, that's okay. Come to Jesus. Because He's never going to turn you away. Human beings are always going to disappoint you, my friends. If you're looking for the perfect church, you're never going to find it because there's no such thing as a perfect person. And so, yes, people will disappoint you. The church will discourage you. The clergy will disappoint you and perhaps break your heart, but Jesus Christ will never do that. It's interesting to note that when that Syrophoenician Canaanite woman 
came to Jesus and begged Him for mercy that He might heal her, her afflicted daughter, what did the disciples say? Send her away. Get rid of her. She's a nuisance. She keeps calling after us. Get, get rid of her. She's not like us. She's not PLU. You know what PLU is? People like us. She's not PLU. But even though the disciples would have turned her away, Jesus never turned her away. And Jesus will never turn you away. If you come to Him, hurting, broken, needy, how does the old hymn put it? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. Come as you are, and you will find in Jesus rest for your weary souls. That's what this 15th chapter of Matthew teaches us. Well, that brings us today to Matthew chapter 16. And I'm just going to say a few words about Matthew chapter 16. I do not want to begin Matthew chapter 16 today. And the reason for that is next week is Thanksgiving. We're going to take a break. This is a very important chapter, not only in Matthew's gospel. It's one of the most important chapters really in the New Testament. And so I don't want to start it, stop, and restart. I'm just going to say a few words as to why I think Matthew chapter 16 is so significant why I say it's one of the most important chapters. One commentator has said that while it's true that all portions of the Bible are profitable and God-breathed, some chapters of the Bible are more important than others. They're all important, but some are more important than others. The way he put it is this. He said, we know that all men are created equal, but some are equaler than others. <laughs> and that may be true of the Bible as well. Let me tell you why I think the 16th chapter of Matthew is so very significant that we need to take the time to really go through it in an organized manner. This chapter contains what you might say is the story of the Christian life in miniature. You could actually take this chapter and share the gospel with somebody, just this one chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and you can unpack the whole of what Christianity is really all about. Right here in this 16th chapter. What does this chapter contain? It contains four very significant things. First of all, it contains Peter's great confession of Jesus Christ. You find that there in chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Now, what we have noticed is that the disciples have been moving along they're growing in their knowledge and their understanding, but they are not there. That's what was so extraordinary about the Canaanite woman. She was far ahead of where they were. Now, that's not to say that they weren't impressed by Jesus. You'll recall that earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, there was that storm at sea, do you remember? And Jesus had been asleep on the pillow in the stern, and they went and they woke him up, and they said, Do you not care that we are about to perish? And Jesus came up to the front of the boat, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, Peace be still. And immediately things became calm. And we're told that the disciples began to mumble amongst themselves, Who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? They were following him, but they really didn't understand exactly who he was. Now, you get a little further on in Matthew chapter 14, 
And Jesus comes to them walking on the water, another encounter at sea. And of course, Peter gets out of the boat, tries to walk on the water. He sinks. He cries, Jesus, save me. The Lord takes him by the hand, pulls him into the boat. And we're told that they fell at his feet and worshipped him. So, So their knowledge of who Jesus is, their sense of what he has come to do is growing, but they're not there. They're not where that woman had been up there in Tyre and Sidon. But when you get to the 16th chapter, they finally arrive. Jesus takes them up to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them a question. Walking along the road one day, and he says, Who do men say that I am? That is to say, what are people saying about me? And everybody begins to pop off answers. Oh, well, everybody's talking about you. And some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus then pauses and he turns to me and said, Yeah, I understand. I've been reading the papers too. What I want to know is, who do you say that I am? And everybody falls silent except for Peter, who on behalf of the others speaks up and says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. They've arrived. Now there's much about Jesus that they don't understand, but by this point they do understand that's who He is. He's no mere mortal. The wind and the seas obey Him. He's no political Messiah. He is, in fact, the Son of God. So that's the first great event that we find in the 16th chapter. The disciples arrive. Now, having arrived, Jesus then can go on to teach them what it means to be the Messiah. Now He can go on to explain to them, now that you know who I am, let me tell you what I've come to do. And that's what he does in verses 21 through 24. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's the heart of Christianity, isn't it? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. How did he do that? By offering himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and by rising for our justification. They couldn't understand that until they first understood who he was. So that's significant. Now they understand who he is. Jesus goes on to explain to them what he's come to do. Here's the third thing that's significant about chapter 16. It's the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we have a reference to the church. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And on this rock, I will build my what? My church. Let me tell you, the church is at the heart of the Christian story, my friends. Jesus Christ came and died that the church might live, that the church might exist. In his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul describes this as the mystery hidden before time but now revealed. That God was creating a new Israel. The church, the means by which he would go forth and continue his redemptive work in the world. It is a mystery. It's a mystery that was hidden. Now, when we think of mystery, the word mystery implies to us conundrum, a puzzle, something that we can't figure out. In the ancient word, the Greek word mysterion basically meant that which was hidden but has now been revealed to the initiated. 
It was sort of like joining the Masonic order. You know, they have all kinds of rites and ceremonies. I'm not a Mason, so I don't know what they are. But they have all kinds of rites and ceremonies and handshakes and that sort of thing. But you don't get to know what those things are until you become initiated into the order. That's what the word mysterion means. And Paul was saying to the Ephesians, God had a plan for the redemption of the world. It is in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, dying upon the cross, what he was going to do was create a new Israel. An Israel that was not just an ethnic Israel, just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles together. And actually, he says, this had been God's plan all along, but now it has been revealed to you. Why? Because you've been initiated into his life. It's a mystery once hidden, now revealed that God is at work and the agent of his work in history and in the world is the church. I believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. What does the word church mean? Ecclesia is the Greek word, from which we get the term ecclesiastical. It means called out ones. So what you have in chapter 16 is Peter saying, you are the Christ. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says, and let me tell you what the Christ, the Son of God, has come to do to go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world and on the third day rise again. Why? That He might reveal to the world a mystery that has been hidden, that God has chosen His people to be initiated into His life and to be the agent for His redemptive purposes in history and in the world. Here's the fourth thing that is significant about chapter 16. Not only is all of that revealed, but then Jesus goes on to say, now that you've been initiated, now you're a part of the church, let me tell you what that means. Verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will ever surely find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus said, I am the Christ. You're right, Peter. I'm the Son of God. And I came in for this war, into this world for one purpose, to die for the sins of the world, to rise for your justification, to create a new family which will go forth and bring the nations to their knees. And in order for that to happen, what it means is that you have to deny yourself and like me, take up your cross and follow me daily. For it's in losing your life that you find it. Now, if you think about it, that's what the Christian life is all about, isn't it? It's right there in one chapter of the Bible. Can you understand why it's such a significant chapter? And that's why we just can't start it today. Because <laughs> we start it today, and then we stop, and then we start it again. But you see how 15 flows right into 16. It's a glorious transition. It's a marvelous message of the one who came to save all sorts and conditions of men and to save them for this purpose, that we might go forth and change the world. Hallelujah. What a marvelous message. So, if we're not going to start chapter 16, and don't think that I'm taking the cheap way out as though I don't have much more to say, 
Oh, I have much more to say. Much more to say. Much more to say. Much more to say. Even more to say. <laughs> well, we're not going to go there today. So, having given you just a taste of what we have to look forward to in chapter 16, we're going to pause now, and I'm just going to give you an opportunity to ask any questions that you may have. So we'll take the rest of the time, half an hour, and we'll do a Q&A. And then when we come back after the holiday, of course, no class next Thursday.